As we begin this uh, sermon series called Giving Up to Get More, I'll be focusing on uh, the word surrender today. Um, There's a leader in Romania, a Christian leader named Joseph Tsan, T-S-O-N, Reverend Joseph Tsan or Tsan, and he was imprisoned under the communist regime for many years, uh, persecuted, and uh, so when he's finally released, he met with a Christian uh, pastor from America here, a guy named Adrian, uh, Adrian uh, Rogers, I believe, who is now deceased. But when they met, Adrian Rogers asked Joseph uh, to, what, what his assessment of American Christianity, and to which he responded, commitment. But that's not a good thing. Not a good thing? What do you mean? Well, in our language, in Romanian language, there's not a word for commitment. Uh, in fact, if you're preaching, I wouldn't have a word to substitute for it in translation. Um, In fact, he said, I did some study of the word commitment, and it replaced another word um, not long ago called surrender. The Christian life is about surrender. Um, Why is that? What's the difference? Well, commitment is us being in control. I'm going to commit. I'm going to plan. I'm going to do this and this and this for God. That's a commitment. But surrender is recognizing that you're not in control. And so that's the biblical uh, secret for living the Christ-filled life, spirit-filled life. There's a story, not a story, I have a personal story playing tennis at McPherson uh, College tennis courts, and I was playing with some other guys maybe a few years ago, and after we're done playing, we noticed something moving in the bushes right there, and it was, um, it was a bird that was really entangled in, in string and wire and such. Just, and the more it tried to get away, the more it got entangled. And so we went over there, and a guy had a jackknife in his, his truck, and he went to it. And when we approached this bird, I'm sure this bird would have been thinking, if we had known the thoughts, that I'm a goner. You know, here's a guy with a shiny knife, and I'm, I'm going to be someone's lunch or something. Uh, but um, as we held this bird, it tried to... Scr- you know, flap and try, and it entangled more and more. But finally, when it relaxed, we were able to cut all the wire and the string and set the bird free. And so it was really a glorious moment to see that bird fly away. The bird had to learn to surrender so that we could do the process of setting it free. It's a scary thing to surrender, even when we are called to surrender to God. It's scary because we are indeed not in control And oftentimes we don't understand what's going on in our life, that to which we're surrendering. Sermon series during these weeks of Lent is called Giving Up to Get More. And the more that we get is namely Jesus. And we're in John 12 this morning, where some Greeks wanted to get more of Jesus. And so they inquired about him. We want, they asked somebody, well, you'll you'll see the scripture verse in John 12, 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip was one of the disciples and went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. These Greeks had heard about Jesus, but why did they want to meet him and see him? We're not told. However, if you do some study between the verses 19 and 20, something happened. A day or two elapsed. 
Jesus was no longer on the road to Jerusalem, but now he was teaching in the temple courts. And we read about this in the parallel gospel account of Mark, where Jesus in the temple overturned the tables of the money changers and, uh, and expelled them from the outer court, namely the court where the Gentiles were only permitted to enter. They weren't allowed to go into the perimeter sections reserved for the Jews. And, um, and so they had to remain on the outer courts. And so Jesus overturned the tables. Perhaps these Greeks had heard that story and they, they appreciated it because it fulfilled the purpose for the temple, for being a house of prayer for all nations, according to Isaiah 56, 7. And they're thinking, yeah, Jesus, you're sticking up for us, us Gentiles. You're making it possible to not be distracted by all this, these money changer, changing in, in sales. But Jesus didn't give the Greeks what they asked for, namely his audience. Instead, he gave them what they needed, namely salvation and inclusion as children of God. For the first time, Gentiles were included because of Jesus' death at the end of that week. So verse 23, Jesus replied to Andrew and Philip, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, Jesus would not be glorified as he had been a day or two earlier when he was entering into the city and they were saying, Hosanna, glorified in the eyes of humans. Rather, Jesus was speaking of a glorification in the eyes of God by way of the cross. Verse 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus was referring to his own life. I have these seeds here in a jar, these, um, these little seeds. And, um, you know, it's a cute little jar here. And the seeds are all nestled in there and they're comfortable and they're, they're good camaraderie happening in the seeds here. But as long as they continue in this jar or in a little packet of seeds, then they will not be fulfilling their purpose. They'll be comfortable, but they'll be, you need to rip it open or open it up and then throw these into the ground, bury them, and these seeds have to die if they're to reproduce much more. And that's what Jesus was saying of himself he knew that his ultimate purpose for coming to the earth was to die and be buried in order to save sinners like us and then rise again, of course, uh, to make possible our broken relationship with God to be restored. You might be asking, but why did Jesus have to die for that? I mean, God's a loving God. He's compassionate. He's merciful. Why didn't he just say, hey, I, I forgive you because it's within my nature to forgive and to love? Because ever since the very beginning of time, God's jurisprudence, universal justice, was established on the earth. When he said to Adam and Eve, first, first people on earth, if you eat of this tree, if you disobey me, you will die. If you sin, you will die. And then later on in the law, it says, the soul that sins shall die. New Testament, the wages of sin is death. So throughout, because of sin, we have to experience death, and we think, well, that's pretty harsh. It's pretty harsh because we don't think sin is that bad, really. But if we saw sin for what it was, then it deserves even more than death. It deserves eternal death. It's that evil and hideous. And, um, and so um, 
he said, you must die. And so Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God's mandate, death entered into their world. And not just their eventual physical death, but a spiritual death immediately where they ran and hid in their shame from God because it separated them from God. Talking about a spiritual separation from God. All criminal activity will eventually come to justice and we would not want it any other way. For example, if someone broke into your house and they, they stole some of your family heirlooms or some of your prized possessions or whatever, then you would get the law involved and you would want justice. You'd want it today. And you'd want your things to be returned and the criminal would be caught because we need justice. Well, in the same way, every sin that we commit against God will require justice and come under judgment. And that judgment for our sin will be paid for in death. Is that not good news? We're on the road toward death. There's two ways to fulfill that consequence or penalty. Either we need to pay it ourselves or find someone else who will pay it on our behalf. And we'll pay it for ourselves if, if we continue to not need God. One day there will be a judgment day and we will opt to pay the eternal death judgment for ourselves. Or we can let someone else do it. A substitute pay that. But the substitute can't be a sinner. The substitute has to be perfect. Otherwise, the substitute would be disqualified and would have to pay for their own sin. And so there was one who was a substitute who was perfect, and that is Jesus. We read in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us while he hung on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it was traded, our sin, for his righteousness. He paid it for us. He paid the penalty of our death on the cross that we might be restored to righteousness. Apart from Jesus' willingness to go to the cross and die, we would all been doomed to an eternal separation and judgment in a place that is very hopeless and dark. Well, we too are called to die to ourselves, Jesus died for us, but we're to follow in his footsteps and we're to die to ourselves if we're to experience life. With what mindset? Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is a really weird statement. Aren't we supposed to love our lives? Are we supposed to go around hating our life? Well, the key phrase there is in this world. Anyone who loves their life in this world or does not hate their life in this world and they try to define their, their existence by what the world offers them and promises to them. So the world here is a sinful worldliness. It's not talking about God's creation of the earth and the world, but the worldliness. John says it in his epistle, 1 John. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which means uh, gra grappling and grasping for things that could fulfill us, that anything other than God, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world the sinfulness of the world. Matthew's parallel account brings some clarity when Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
What good will it be if someone, for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? When I read this passage, I thought of two classmates of mine in high school who were the life of the party. They were, everybody loved these people. They were class clowns, and uh, one was actually a year older, but, you know, I, I would see them out and about, and everybody loved these people. They were witty, they were fun, uh, life of the party. But their lives were focused on seeking comfort and pursuing self-gratification and living for the weekend, so to speak. You know, party hardy. And from what I could tell on Facebook and stuff, uh, they continued in that lifestyle. At different points, I was able to share Jesus with both of them, to which they stared at me blankly and they had no interest whatsoever. To my knowledge, they didn't have interest up until three years ago when the first one died of cancer. And then last year, the other one died of cirrhosis of the liver. And I wonder how they're spending eternity right now. Are they reminiscing about all the good times, all the 60 or so years that they enjoyed on this earth? Man, they had it made. But for now, all eternity, are they thinking back to that? Or do you suppose they have some regret? Thinking, man, did it, was I ever wrong? I missed out on the true life when I forfeited Jesus. And I don't know, some, they may have come to Christ before their death. Um, I don't know that, but I don't think so. Jesus warned others of the dangers of hell as much, if not more, than he talked about heaven because he loves us that much. So Jesus came to serve and live sacrificially. On the other hand, he came to surrender his life to God as a servant of God, and he asks us to follow in his footsteps as servants. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. When we follow Jesus, it doesn't mean uh, we have to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins or for other people. You know, there's only one Savior, but it does mean that we're called to die to our self-centered lives of self-service, life evolving around me. And we're to live sacrificially in service to God and to others. We're to be other-centered as Jesus was. We die to our self-life when we spend time help building the, or decorating the tiny homes or we invest in the people who will live there. Uh, we die to our schedules, our own lives of what, what do you want to do this week? And I don't know, there's a movie, there's a, there's a game, there's a, what, let's go mess around, let's go camping. You know, we die to ourselves when we set aside our schedule and preferences and we put others before our needs because there's great need. We die to ourselves when we go on mission trips like they did a few weeks ago. We die to ourselves when we serve on Wednesday nights with the youth or the children or Sunday morning in the nursery or on the worship team or as an usher or as a teacher or as a volunteer rather than to just come to church for what I can get out of it. We die to ourselves every time that we say, I'm going to put others first. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about surrender and living the life of sacrifice. This kind of sacrificial Living does not come naturally to any one of us. We naturally default to self-service. We want to seek our own comfort, our own pleasure, our own relaxation, our own ease, our own prosperity, our own success, our own fun. 
That's what much of our conversation is about. Even Jesus was kind of tempted by the devil to utilize worldly methods to fulfill his purpose on earth. That is to become king of kings and lord of lords. Yet, yet Jesus, although he was tempted, he did not pursue that. Instead, he, he pursued the way of the cross, ultimate sacrifice. In 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this purpose that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from, came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus was resolved to surrender to his Father's will, even though it meant giving up his life. And when we surrender God, to God, we die to ourselves in order to glorify God and point others to Jesus. I've recently felt that my freedom has been kind of stripped from me and limited in some ways because of the recent illnesses that I've had to endure. And they haven't been major illnesses per se, but they've been life-altering illnesses. Um, many have asked, why you, have you lost so much weight? And I said, I don't know. Well, I discovered with the help of the doctor that the medicine I was taking um, took away my hunger. And so I was never hungry for like a month and a half. So I didn't eat. So I lost weight. At the same time, suffering from um, just not feeling well. And so it was medi medi medicine-induced, if you will, in case you're wondering. But, um, but this kind of freedom, um, God had to remind me many times over as I prayed, God, what is going on with me? He had to remind me that, John, I'm leading you to more freedom, even though it feels like your freedom is limited to do what you want to do, eat what you want to eat, when you want to eat it, um, with the strength that you have, you know, my freedom felt limited, but Jesus said, no, I'm leading you to greater freedom. Trust in me. And this kind of freedom only comes by surrendering to Christ, not by pursuing the worldly method of freedom, living any way that we so choose, which will ultimately always lead us to more bondage and separation from God. E. Stanley Jones, a preacher from past years, said, if we don't surrender to Christ, we will surrender to chaos. We're always surrendering to something. One leads to freedom, the other leads to chaos and destruction. Well, what does this surrender look like? Well, I connected with a friend on the phone a couple weeks ago, a college friend from Michigan, and we had a great conversation about our families and such. And at the end of the conversation, we both shared about our ailments that we're, just, we're, we're both experiencing and how it's beyond our control. And then he sent me a poem that had ministered to him, and it's kind of um, poetic, but it's called The Avowal by Denise Levertov. As swimmers dare to lie face to the sky and water bears them, as hawks rest upon air and air sustains them, so would I learn to attain free fall and float into the Creator Spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns that all-surrounding grace. This past Monday, the staff met for a day-long retreat in Great Bend, and I met with a spiritual director there who relayed some of her own suffering in her life. And she said, our relationship with God is like being stranded in the middle of the ocean where boat capsizes. So we could do one of three things. We could either sink, 
which is not a good option, just give up, or, or we could start swimming in whatever direction, and you could do that, or you could just land your back and float and allow the currents to take you, and that would be God's current. Allow God, rest in God's provision. Well, what I've discovered through that illustration is I've been doing a whole lot of swimming because I want to get to the solutions as fast as I can. I'm swimming every which way, flailing and kicking until I'm finally completely exhausted. And I don't know what to do, where to turn. So I can't swim anymore. So I have two options left. I could either sink in despair or I could turn over and float and allow the Lord's currents to take me as he wills. I'm learning to do that. It's frustrating, though. I remember one sleepless night of prayer recently when God led me to pray this prayer, and it was a long-fought prayer. It says, Lord, I belong to you. This body belongs to you. My spirit belongs to you. My health belongs to you. My soul belongs to you. My future belongs to you. I'm yours. You purchased me at a great cost, and you've chosen me for your purposes and for your glory, so I can trust in you. So I surrender to you. I turn over on my back and allow your presence to engulf me. But I got to tell you, that surrender is not a once-in-a-lifetime prayer decision. It's a daily and many times a day decision. As Ron Hushcraft said, I don't think we live the Christian life so much as the Christian day. This is a surrender to Christ that is renewable every morning and indeed many times throughout the day as we continue to swim and flail and then remind ourselves, okay, I can't do this. Surrender. Well, let's conclude with this passage in verse 29. The crowd standing there heard it, it being the voice from heaven saying, it will, you, you will be glorify my name, and said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He, Jesus, said this to show the kind of death he was going to die on the cross. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Why would God allow a horrific death for his son? It made no sense to the crowd as it makes no sense to people today outside of Christ, including my two friends I referred to earlier. No sense. What about this crucifixion that happened 2,000 years ago? What difference does that make? Crucifixion was the lowest form of torture ever invented, and it was reserved for the worst of criminals the crucified would helplessly hang there on the cross, many of them naked, complete humiliation and shame for the mocking world to look upon them. Can you imagine the depths of humiliation to subject yourself and surrender to the cross? I mean, we get deeply humiliated when we're in a restaurant and we come out of the bathroom and we have toilet paper stuck to our heel. So why would God the Father allow such humiliation of the crucifixion to come upon his son. And Jesus said it here. 
because he wanted to drive the prince of darkness out of this world. That prince that holds us captive because of our sin. He holds power over us. Jesus came to defang this enemy and declaw this enemy. And if we're in Christ, Satan has no power over us any longer. The only power he has is the power of the tongue, the lie. He can't touch us except convince us by his lies that he still controls us. Jesus came in verse 31. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And then secondly, he came to redeem us, to purchase us back with the price of his blood, to make it possible that we be in a living, intimate relationship with him forever. In verse 32, he said, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And uh, it's basically out of love that, not basically, it is out of love that Jesus did this for us. He wasn't placed on the cross by the Romans. He, he went there on his own accord. Um, Charles Spurgeon writes, There is one who cares for you, his eye, oh, by the way, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, um, suffered from depression and anxiety greatly throughout his life. He said, there's one who cares for you. His eye is fixed on you. His heart beats with pity for your woe. And his omnipotent hand shall bring you the needed help. The darkest cloud shall scatter itself in showers of mercy. He, if you belong to him, will bind up your wounds, and heal your broken heart. Do not doubt his grace because of your tribulation, but believe that he loves you as much in seasons of trouble as in times of happiness. He has never refused to bear your burdens. He has never fainted under their weight. Come then, soul. Say goodbye to anxiety. Leave all your concerns in the hand of a gracious God. How can we experience that type of love? Verse 36, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. And Jesus is that light, light of the world. Believe means to trust. It's not just the mental belief. Yeah, we all believe in Jesus. We're Americans. We all believe in God. We all believe we're going to heaven because, you know, we know we hear church services on the radio sometimes. Believe means to cling to, means to depend upon. It's not just a mental belief because the devil has a mental belief in God and Jesus. I want to conclude with this bird story again. It got set free when it stopped flapping and somehow surrendered to the process of cutting it free. But then one more illustration. Alan Redpath shares perhaps a better story for surrender to God. His two daughters loved to swarm him when he returned home from work every day. As he came in the door one evening, his little girls ran up. And the first one ran and grabbed hold of dad's leg and just hung on to it. And then the other girl ran behind the first daughter and, and Alan picked up his second daughter. The first daughter holding on to the leg, she said, now I've got all of daddy. And she smirked at her sister. But the daughter in the father's arms replied, well, you may have all of daddy, but daddy has all of me. That's pretty cool. I like that. And that's what it means to surrender. To allow him to have all of us. 
and to be held in his secure arms and loving embrace. Are you trusting him enough to allow him to have all of you? That's what surrender looks like. Let's pray. And so, Lord, what a powerful story at the end. But that's who you are. You are our loving Father. You know what each one of us may be going through, whether it's mild, whether it's really, really scary, whether it's um, out, totally out of control, or whether we feel we're in control, Lord. You know what state of our mind and hearts are, and, and yet you, you never forsake us. You're always by our side, leading us. Thank you for being a loving Father. Teach us to trust you and to continually surrender to your leading and your love and your security. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.